Okay, I think, uh, I think we're ready to get started here. Lots of great commotion here in the room, so that's excellent. Good morning to everybody who is online. Welcome to you as well to Colwood Church. And my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here on this team. And it is good to have you here today. Now, we've got just a couple of things I, I do want to share with you as a church community. Uh, first of all, our staff right now is looking for a part-time maintenance person. So if you know, maybe this is you, or maybe you know of somebody, again, it's a part-time play, but if you have somebody in a maintenance world and would like a job maybe here at the church with our team, please let us know. Contact me this week, today, or whatever could work. We'll get that done. Our church also has a camp, Nanus Bay Pentecostal Camp. Somebody shout out, Nanus Bay Pentecostal Camp. Now, Tomorrow, tomorrow evening is our AGM, and this is just an invitation to you. Perhaps you just want to hear more about what the camp is and, and where they're at and what they're doing. Well, tomorrow I'm inviting you at 7 p.m. to join us online, and you could see the link as to how you could join us if you want to hear the good news of what God is doing in our camp, and we're excited. Our church has high involvement in this camp, and I'm excited for what is going to take place, so join us there tomorrow. That'd be fantastic. Let's jump in. Um, I, I, have you ever, anybody ever been to a concert before? Anybody? Okay. Like, and how many of you have been to a concert post-COVID now? Anybody yet? All right, it's a couple people. And we're kind of joined. I've been to several concerts in my life. I love concerts. But oftentimes when you go to a concert, you will, you'll, you'll walk into the building and it will be at one end of the building, of the arena, you'll see this massive stage and it is set up on one end. And so that means that people behind the stage kind of can't see it. But has anybody ever been to a concert where the, the team is not at one end of the building, but they've placed them in the, in the heart of the room? Has anybody been to one of those kind of concerts? And so now what happens is there is this 360 panoramic view, and it's fantastic. The, the intimacy of the moment is, is quite great. But the, the reality is that they're, they're in the middle. And I've been thinking about in this middle thing. And so as I was doing that, I was thinking about relationships. And this week, I, I went down memory lane because I, I used to listen to this song growing up that was forced upon me by my parents. And it's everybody's favorite music genre, country music, right? Come on, somebody. No? <laughs> <laughs> Some people are like, <laughs> wow, there's a lot of country fans here. <laughs> Some people are going to leave now. But anyway, uh, but th there, was this, there was this group, and, and their name was Diamond Real. And, and there was this song, and it was like this, and it was about the context of relationships. It goes, I start walking your way, you start walking mine, we meet in the... It's just this middle thing is interesting to me. And then I started thinking about Oreo cookies. And uh, come on, somebody. You, you know what I'm talking about. If you know the Oreo cookie, you know that the best part is in the middle. For those of you that like the outsides, I'm going to ask you to leave right now, right? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> we know that it's, it's the middle, and it's this middle thing that has got me um, thinking a little bit as we're going to look at our text. So welcome to our new series, Not As It Seems. We're looking at the book of Revelation, and so let me just give you a quick drill as to our intro from last week. We realize that as we look at the book of Revelation together, there are three things that I need you to not forget in the duration of it. Number one is that this is a book from Jesus, and it's about Jesus. Everything about Revelation points to him, and if we're looking at other things, we've gravely missed what this is about. So it's about Jesus. Number two, that this is a book and it's about your discipleship. What am I asking? I'm asking you at the end of the day, who, who do you worship? What are you worshiping in your life? Because this is a discipleship book. And number three is that it aligns itself to the rest of scripture. 
We talked about last week how we have to have a theological responsibility to this book because there's been a lot of irresponsibility towards it. So we come with a a responsibility and we look at its context. We have to understand its literature as to why it is saying what it is saying and how we can read it and try to interpret and know for us today. And so it was there where we learned that there were three types of literary content. First one was apocalyptic, that the word revelation in the Greek means apocalypsis. It doesn't mean that it's the end of the world doomsday. It's talking about how it is meant to reveal something. And the book of Revelation is, a, is revealing something, and it is a breakthrough of somebody in particular, and it's the breakthrough of Jesus Christ, and he wants to communicate that to us. It is prophetic as the, as the second type of literature, prophetic in the context of there is predictive future to the book of Revelation. But not only that, the word prophecy means that there is comfort and hope that should also be given to the church. And, and I don't know about you, but a lot of people, when they've looked at the book of Revelation, they look at it, they're afraid and they're, they're scared of what it is. But my context of reading is this, is that this is a book of hope that Jesus wants to pour comfort into you and I, and here's the best news, he wins anyway. I mean, if that's not hopeful compared to the fear that I see in a culture, I don't know what is. And then it's a, and then it's a pastoral letter, and it's good old Pastor John. And I asked us to approach this book together with a humility. Let's, let's approach it understanding that maybe I've got some things wrong in my past with this book, or maybe there have been a lot of helpful things, but a humility But in the context of that apocalyptic literature, let me read this quote by Daryl Johnson. And it says this, apocalyptic literature seeks to do two things. First, it seeks to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. Here's the point. Jesus is coming. And guess what? He's going to win. Amen? Like, I think that is good news. But second, and probably more importantly at this stage, it seeks to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. The fundamental conviction of this literature is things are not as they seem, thus our title, not as they seem. There is more to reality than meets the unaided senses. And this scares the pants off a lot of people today. Because what do you mean? If it's not in my six senses, it must not be real. But that is not true when we consider the realities of heaven. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to continue the story. And we read last week in verse 3 of chapter 1 is that blessed is the one who reads the book. And I'm a blessed man today because I'm reading the book to you. But it also says that you could have a blessing if you hear the words of the book and obey what it says. How many of you are looking for a blessing today? I sure am. And so let's go after that today together. In verse 9, it picks up the story. It says, I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering and in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day. I was worshiping in the spirit. And suddenly I heard a loud voice like a trumpet blast. And it said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities that you see. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. How about a ripoff, right? It's like, what? A trumpet to a lampstand. Interesting. And standing in the where? Ah. Standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in the furnace. And his voice 
thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. Remember what Pastor Jen just said to us moments ago? A two-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, and he said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and the grave. So John, write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's pray as we've read the word of the Lord together today. Father, thank you for this time, and thank you for your word. Your word reveals a lot, thus the word revelation. An apocalypse is really what we need today, so uncover some of the truths about what you're trying to communicate to John and to us. Uncover those truths about what you're trying to say to us about who you are. And may today we walk away challenged but changed more to the likeness. Help us to hear the word, but help us to obey your word. Thank you, Jesus, for this time that we have. It's precious, and it's something we we should really not take for granted. So thank you for being here. And so we give you these moments, ask you to um, challenge us, speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, come on, everybody said, today I'd like to speak to us from the subject in the middle. And uh, to do that, I'm going to take these uh, quick 11 verses, but I got to tell you, I could turn these 11 verses into a five-week series with what I'm about to try to unload to us in 20 minutes. So stay with me with this, but we have to get through, not get through, but we're working our way through this book. But I have four things that I kind of want to share with you when it comes to what we have just read together today. So first, let's pick it up with the person whose name is John. John is the author of the book of Revelation, so we need to know who is John, what is he all about, Tell us about him. So John, in Revelation, uh, it shows us, well, scholars will probably say around 96 AD is when the book of Revelation was brought into his existence. But you will notice that there are many years before 96 AD where the church is under a great persecution. In fact, to be a follower of Jesus is not too friendly for you. It will show us that in 65 AD, the emperor of Rome, whose name was Nero, decided to say, hey, who's a Christian? And people would put up their hand, and guess what he would do to them? He'd kill you. The persecution started coming into the Roman Empire, and two years later in 67 AD, that persecution intensified under Emperor Vespasian. In 70 AD, historians will show us that the most precious commodity that Israel, the Jewish people had, which was the temple, was completely and utterly destroyed by the Roman government. They tore it down. They got rid of it because a new rule was going to be at play. But in 92 AD, a few years later, things got even worse. Emperor Domitian ordered all the citizens of the empire to worship him as Lord and God. In fact, he changes the name from the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire. Sounds Star Wars, doesn't it? And he calls himself the Everlasting King. In fact, he tells every single citizen, you need to go to the temple, you need to take a touch of incense, you need to throw it onto the altar, and you need to proclaim these words, Caesar Curios, which means Jesus is, or Caesar is Lord. 
This guy has the audacity to step into Israel and to proclaim that he is the Lord. Remember moments ago how I, I shared with us that Revelation is all about a book on discipleship. Here's the question. Who are you going to worship in this culture? Because it was right in front of the Jewish people in a Roman regime back in the day when it was originally wrote. But who will you worship? People bowed their knee. They threw their incense onto the altar. They declared Caesar curios, but not so fast when it comes to good old Pastor John. Pastor John, when he is commanded to say Caesar curios, he says, uh uh-uh. I'm not going to do it. He says that there is only one person who I will worship and who I will serve, and his name is Jesus. And he differentiates between who he's going to serve, and he makes it abundantly clear who he's going to serve. So much so that they looked at Pastor John, and they're like, enough with you, and they send him to Patmos. He is exiled to prison for making a stand for Jesus. Anybody want to be exiled today in Canada for Jesus? You want to go to race rocks as your exile? <laughs> but this is what is happening. A picture on the screen will show you exactly where Patmos is. And it is off the modern day coast of Turkey. And you will see that from our text, from Patmos, there are Pastor John's seven churches. And so from his very own prison cell, he probably is looking to the coastline of Turkey and he sees a couple of his churches as he's in prison for saying, I am not bowing my knee to Caesar. Is amazing to see what is taking place with the author. And God decides to visit John on Patmos and he gives him the revelation. There's a, a fourth literary style that I told you I would bring to you today. And that literary, literary style that we now see is called theopolitical. What it means is that it makes a claim about who is truly God against a sociopolitical order. For the last few weeks, I've been preparing you for the political side of what is going to take place in the book of Revelation. That in a socio-political world, and we have this in Canada as well, it is going to demand and command for you and I, who are you going to worship? And the reality is, is when politics and faith come like this, we often think that they can't coincide, but they have to. And I believe that Revelation gives us a picture into the socio-political world. So we have to understand that as Pastor John writes... He's talking to us in Canada today just as much as he is talking about Rome in Israel that day. And there is a context that is there. You will notice this one thing about Pastor John in the text is that never once in the book of Revelation will you hear him say the word Rome or Roman. Doesn't use it. Because he knows that this letter is going to be sent to his churches. He knows full well. And so what God is asking him to write is what he is doing. But he'll use the word Babylon. Instead, And so Babylon is going to become the symbol and the representation of different kingdoms and empires that have happened in the course of history, and we will see them exposed in this way. But what Jesus is doing this day on the island of Patmos with John is he is proclaiming to not only John, but to you and I, kingdoms and rulers are going to come and go. But guess what? There's only one ruler who is going to be sustained through the rest of time, and his name is Jesus. Think about it. Every single kingdom in our history has come, dominated, and where'd they go? To the ground. Bye-bye. And then another one rises up. But there's something about the kingdom of God and this king that is revealing himself to Pastor John on an island. 
The second thing that I want us to see out of this text is, is, the, is the phrase in the middle. In fact, uh, Daryl Johnson in his book would say that there are five specific windows that what is about to take place here in Revelation chapter one is gonna happen in other moments. And the moment is this, is that Pastor John or John, he hears something with his ears and he turns around and he sees something completely different. So our text showed us, didn't it, that when, when he heard, he heard someone and it was the sound of a trumpet. Can you imagine if someone had a trumpet voice talking to you about what was happening all the time? It'd get irritating. But the text shows us that it's a trumpet, and the trumpet is important. For what reason? This one. Is that the trumpet sound was an announcement, and it often had to do with royalty. Do you find it interesting that Jesus decides to sound like a trumpet when he's about to reveal to John who he is? Jesus is making a statement. I'm the trumpet. And so he takes that moment to share that with John. It shows us in the text that it was the Lord's day. So what that means is that John, even though in his prison, finds himself on the Lord's day, which is typically a day like today in our culture, in the Lord's day, and he says that he was worshiping. John is in prison, and he worships the Lord. I was thinking about that for a second this week, and I was thinking, what about you? Are you in prison? Maybe not literally, but maybe are there things in your life that have got you locked down and caged and you feel like there's no hope and there's nothing that you could do? And there's John in prison and what is he doing? He's worshiping the Lord. Folks, listen to me. No matter your circumstance or situation, keep worshiping Jesus no matter the storm that is in your way. You gotta do it. It says to us in this text that he was in the spirit. It's one of four times in the book of Revelation that you will see that phrase, in the spirit. What does that mean? It means that the spirit of God wants to move upon your life. As Pastor Jen shared with us just moments ago, that the spirit of God wants to empower you to stand in exactly where you're at and to succeed with your life. He has the spirit of God for you. In the Roman Empire, in fact, the very first day of every single month was called Emperor's Day, where they would worship their emperor. The Judeo-Christian culture didn't like that a whole lot. So what did they do? They decided to not do a monthly thing. They decided to do a weekly thing, and they called it the Lord's Day, Sunday. So, okay, Rome, you do it once a month. We're going to do it four. Who's better? <laughs> you know, like that's kind of what they were doing with that moment. So it shows us that he hears this trumpet and he turns around and he sees. But here it is. Things are not as they seem. Because when he turned around, he sees seven golden lampstands. <laughs> Awkward. Weird. I heard this trumpet. I get a lampstand. Like, am I in Beauty and the Beast and all of these things coming to life? So that's where he's at. Now, to us today, golden lampstand. Oh, that's cute. Imagery, metaphoric, okay, whatever. But to the Jewish reader, to the audience that John had, the moment when he turns around and sees seven golden lampstands and he pens it into the book of Revelation, every single Jewish person would have understood in that moment what was happening. Because the golden lampstand was something from their most prized possession of the Old Testament called the temple. And in the tabernacle, there was this thing called the golden lampstand. And so what Jesus is doing, and remember the third point of Revelation, align it to the rest of the book. You will find what happens in Revelation throughout the whole entire canon of Scripture 
And what Jesus is doing is he's taking John to the Old Testament with the golden lampstand. And what Jesus is trying to show John and to you and I today is that lampstands are a great picture of the church. Hear me. We do not produce the light. We simply display it. That's what Jesus is saying for you and I today. I'm going to be the producer. You're going to be the displayer. Jesus talks to us in Matthew 5 and 6 about you don't take your light and you don't hide it under a lampshade. No, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Like we do that. He's like, you put it on the lampstand. You let people see what is going to take place. So as he's writing this down and he's got the attention of his seven churches because he needs to send it to them. He needs them to see what's happening. Then John says, I see in this picture, I see someone like the Son of Man, which is a really quick cross-reference again to this book in the Old Testament called Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, we are kind of given some insight because the word Son of Man originates in in Daniel chapter 7. It's fascinating. But Daniel himself, who is one of the prophetic mentors of John himself, he has his own apocalyptic vision. He has an own revealing that takes place in his story. And in Daniel's vision, he sees these four beasts. And I'm telling you, go to Daniel chapter 7. If you want a, a picture of a beast, he paints four of them. And they're hideous. They're weird. It's just different. But Daniel chapter 7 is where these beasts come. The one thing we have to understand is that were these beasts literally walking the face of the earth? No, not like that. What he was describing and trying to teach the people is that there are kingdoms and there are empires like the beasts. And those beasts have come into the earth. Babylon, Persia, the Greek. All of these kingdoms have risen and they are going to fall. And he continues with the story. Because he says basically at that time, this is what needs to take place. Because when the language of beasts happen, we kind of have to go back to the beginning of the book. Do you remember that in a garden, there is this slithery little beast who decides to step into earth and he decides to take its rule over humanity. But in Daniel, he says, I see someone like the Son of Man. And he's riding into the clouds of heaven, and he takes a seat at the right hand of the Father. It was symbolic because the people were looking for the human being, the only human being to ever ascend into heaven, to take his seat at the right hand of God, and to conquer the beast. His name was Jesus. And so on the island of Patmos, he's not only pulling in Daniel chapter 7 to make a point, he's basically saying to John himself, I am the son of man. I went to heaven. I sat beside my father. I rule. I went to a cross. I died for the sins of mankind, but I got back up. And the beast that has been in this earth for its centuries and for its ages has been defeated once and for all by Jesus. Come on, somebody. Say amen to that. That's a good news. One human being into the presence of God. In fact, the word son of man is referenced 80 times in the Gospels. Jesus himself, it's one of his favorite things to call himself as he identifies with the people. He's basically saying, I was human being. I walked this earth with you. But not only that, I am supernatural. I am deity. I am who I am. And again, here's the question. Who are you going to worship? I think Jesus is definitely worthy for that. So here is the glue of this whole entire part of the, of the, in the middle. And it's the Oreo cookie. Because John is standing 
on that island, he's listening and basically says he sees that he sees the Son of Man, and the Son of Man is standing where? In the middle. The golden lampstands are the churches. And he uses seven of them. That's important. I'm going to tell you about that in just a moment. But Jesus is standing in the middle of his churches. That for the course of history, Jesus, who was, who is, and is to come, is standing in the middle of his church. That even for Callwood Church today, Jesus is not standing on the peripheral. He's not out there. He's not on vacation. He's not doing his thing over here. He's in the middle. And he's looking at this church today and the churches of the world, capital C, and he's standing in the middle where he rightly belongs because he is the centrality. He is the focal point, and there is nothing else we have if Jesus doesn't stand in the middle today. And I want you to see that in the middle of this church today, Jesus is in the middle. The third thing I want to draw out of this text today for us to see are the numbers, the colors, and thus the symbolic nature of them. Luke Timothy Johnson says this about these things. Few writings in all of literature have been so obsessively read with such generally disastrous results as the book of Revelation. Its history of interpretation is largely a story of tragic misinterpretation resulting from a fundamental misapprehension of the work's literary form and purpose. Insofar as its arcane symbols have fed the treasury of prayer and poetry, its influence has been benign. More often, these same symbols have nurtured delusionary systems, both private and public, to the destruction of their fashioners and to the discredit of the writing. I don't know what your position would be today. And like I said, we have to come with a humility. But what we're looking at when it comes to these uh, symbols that we see in the book of Revelation is this. Are they literary or are they not? Because some people will take these things and they'll be like, as we've read in chapter one, the sevenfold spirit of God. What, God has seven spirits? Is that what this is saying? Like the seven churches. I mean, is there really only seven churches in the world? You answer. Seven churches in the world? Entire world? Well, probably not. And so what we have to understand is that there is symbolic stuff that is beginning to take place. In fact, that when we read the book of Revelation, I want you to see this, that when you see people represented in the book of Revelation, they are often represented in the likeness of animals, a lamb, beasts. So you'll see this as we explore. You'll also see that historical events are represented in natural phenomena, earthquakes, floods. And so is the case with numbers and colors. Numbers and colors have a big significance, and we, and we need to understand that they are symbols of something trying to be communicated to us. And so I've prepared for us today um, a guide that when you leave today on the back tables, you could take this piece of paper. On one side, it's going to talk to you about the colors and the scriptural references out of the book of Revelation. On the other side, you're going to get a bunch of numbers and what they're going to see. Now, for the sake of our time and conversation today, I don't have enough time to do it, but I'm going to highlight a couple of them. First of all, we're going to look at the colors. You'll look at the second one on the screen in red. When you see red in Revelation, it often means blood or violent power. You'll notice that in the horse of judgment, the rider's breastplates, or a dragon. Chapter 12 is going to be tons of fun for us <laughs> with a dragon. But uh, we look at the word gold. Now, again, it's incorruptible wealth, beauty, royalty, actual, and I know it says of, but it should say, should say or, okay? 
It could be actual or false divinity. So you're going to see the representation of the lampstands. You're going to see the sash of the Son of Man, as we've already talked about. You'll notice bowls of incense. You'll notice idols come into play, false divinity. You'll see a bunch of different things, so the colors are important. But let's flip the page, and we go to numbers. Numbers are important because the literal approach that many people have had is very interesting to say the least. A lot of people have looked at the number six, and you'll notice that on the screen, the number six is a sign of incompleteness. Throughout the whole entire Bible, not just Revelation, six is incomplete. And guess what seven is? Complete. Do you notice why God says the sevenfold spirit? What is he saying? Complete. When he says the seven churches, he's saying complete and perfect. And he's talking about the seven stars that he holds in his hand. What is he saying? Complete. But you'll notice that, especially in the six, you'll get this this little sequence that we've often heard about in our literature and society, 666. Are you going to get that stapled on, or not stapled, tattooed (laughs) onto your uh, forehead or your wrists? I don't know what to answer that, but if you come back in a couple months, I'll give you the answer when we get to that part of the section. But the the idea here is this. It's like even when you look at the last number, 144,000. Last time I checked, we, we live in a world of 7 to 8 billion people. And what is being demonstrated here is that people have taken a literal stance that there are going to only be 144,000 people who make it to heaven. Here's my question. Are you one of them? How do you get into that? What we're talking about in symbols is that it's a grand number. Is it literal, non-literal? I'm going to let you wrestle with your belief system, but I'm here to tell us today that these symbols are important. And we have to be true to the literary devices that are given to us. We can't just lift up when it works over here and then let it fall down over here. We have to approach. And so I hope that this guide will help you as you simply read as you move forward. Last thing that we're going to talk about here today is the Son of Man. Here's the fifth literary type, and I'm going to get you out with this. But theopoetical. And what we're talking about here is that there is a great liturgy that happens in the book of Revelation. And we're going to explore that together in the next few weeks. But Eugene Peterson says, before we even know what this son of man looks like, we know what he does. And this is interesting because if you were to walk to a police station, how would you know that you are in a police station? Besides the name on the building, you would see people in their uniforms. You would know. And what John does to us here in this text is he gives us the uniform of the son of man. It says that the Son of Man is in a long robe and he has got this sash of pure gold around his chest, which represented one more thing to the Jewish reader. It took them all the way back into the Old Testament one more time and it reminded them of this person who was in the temple and they were called the high priest. And what we are beginning to see is Jesus reveals himself as he is just experienced with John through golden lampstands. Jesus is showing himself to be exactly that, the high priest that we are needed. He is the high priest who will be there, who will open doors for you. He will be the high priest who will be there, who will help you, and he will be at your side. He will be whatever he can be to help you and I today. And priests tended, believe this or not, to the lampstand in the temple. So what Jesus is showing is that not only are the lampstands there, the church, but I am going to be the high priest, and guess what I'm going to do to my church from the middle? I'm going to take care of my church. Isn't this pretty crazy, what Jesus is downloading to John in these moments? He sees it and he knows what is happening. 
And it is here where we understand that he is the high priest. So he references the Old Testament. Then John takes this. He doesn't take one, two, three, four, five, or six items. Guess how many items he used to describe Jesus? What does that mean? Complete and perfect. And he begins to tell us about this Jesus. He begins to tell us about the Son of Man. This is what he says. That his head and his hair are white, which means old age, wisdom. And when he says he's as white as snow, there's a beautiful purity about him. What John is doing at this moment, he is cross-referencing again, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, where God is, he's called the ancient of days. Have you ever called anybody the ancient of days before besides God? I've done it with my dad. You're the ancient of days, my friend, right? Like, and what am I saying? You are old. And this reference out of Daniel chapter 7 is something that comes into play in Revelation chapter 1. It's second thing, it says that his eyes are like flames of fire, which is like the judgment that God will bring to our situation. Is he grace and mercy? Yes, he is. But is he a God of judgment? Yes, he is. And he's going to bring that refining into our lives together. The feet of bronze mean that he was refined in the fire. Did you know that the strongest metal in ancient time was bronze? And not only when he says that I have feet of bronze, what Jesus is doing with John in that, on the island of Patmos that day is he's taking him back to Exodus chapter 27, where guess what else was in the temple? The brazen altar, the bronze altar. And now Jesus is making an identification to the old system, to the new system. And he is saying that he is the stable one. He is going to be the mobile one who will walk with you in whatever you walk through. I love what he's doing here. He talks about his voice, powerful, like a waterfall, his hands, which are holding those stars, the angels. It says that he is secure, that Guys, we are in his hands as churches. Are you happy for that today? He, we are in the secure hands of Jesus Christ. His mouth is the next thing that he talks about. And out of his mouth comes the sword of the Spirit, the sword, the double-edged sword, which is a reference out of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12. And please understand me here, because a lot of people have Jesus coming in with a sword and slashing people down on his big white horse. That's not the picture. The sword of the Spirit was meant to come and not be used as weaponry against to kill, but it is to bring hope and comfort in life to a world that needs it. The Word of God is everything today, and we have to understand that this is important for our story. His face is radiating. It's better than the stars, and this is where the theopoetical aspect of this chapter comes into play, because John, outside of our own eyes, he does something for us. He actually matches number one and number seven together in the list that was just given to you. You'll see it on the screen. He matches the head and the face together. He then moves to the eyes and the mouth, two and six. He then uses to the feet and to the hands, three and five. And look at what number four is as it stands alone. And it is his voice, and it stands in the middle of the whole sequence. What Jesus is saying to all of us today, as well as Pastor John on the island of Patmos, it's my voice, people, that you need to listen to in this world. With empires and kingdoms and things that are happening all around and the uncertainty of it all, Jesus' voice is in the middle and he is primary to what we need in this life. It's beautiful, isn't it? What is being depicted in these verses, who knew? unless we applied a little bit of study to it. In verse 17 and 18, it says that John falls to the floor as if he were dead. I think I would do the same too. 
with what I had just seen, what I have just heard. And do you see what happens at that moment when John's on the floor acting dead? It says that Jesus with his right hand, that same right hand that holds the stars, the angels, he reaches down and he touches them. And it reminded me today of this. Do you need a touch from Jesus today? Anybody? Anybody need a touch? Because I'm here to tell you that this is what Jesus does. This is what the Son of Man does. He comes and he will touch you where you're at in your situation, your circumstance. It's what he does. He declares to John, like, I'm, I'm the one who died. I rose again. I hold the keys of life and death. I'm the one who was, who is, and is to come. Like, I, I am that guy. And John, I'm presenting myself to you today. Write the story. Put it down. Let your churches know and let the rest of humanity know for the rest of time that I am the one who's going to stand in the middle and I'm going to hold my church and I'm going to love my church and I'm going to see them through. There is going to be no kingdom. There's going to be no beast. There's going to be nothing that will get in the way and the trajectory of what I have for you. I am going to stand in the middle. And then Jesus gives us the answer key of this particular text in verse 20. And he told us that the seven golden lampstands are the seven what? Churches. And then he said in his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the angels. Now angels, there's an interesting one, don't you think? Everybody has got a fascination with angels. Like are angels real? What do they do? What can I learn from these things? Angels are mentioned 108 times in the Old Testament, 165 times in the New Testament. They are mentioned so much, yet they are so poorly understood by people. I mean, we got types of angels, ministering angels, warrior angels, guiding, cherubim, seraphim, archangels. Is there an angel watching my life? Is there an angel watching our church? I can actually make the, the case today that I actually would say yes to that. I think that there's an angel watching this church today. I've had people demonstrate to me that they've seen angels in this room where you sit. Think about that. You've got this hovering angel over your life right now. Or the fact that as you go in your day in your own trajectory that you've got an angel that perhaps guides and watches you too. Isn't that awesome? That God would be so good to allow that kind of protection over my life and over our life. But please hear me. If you just stop there and focus on that angel, you've missed the whole entire point of the story. Angels are not meant to be worshipped. The only one who is meant to be worshipped is the one who stands in the middle, the Son of Man, and his name is Jesus. Do not misplace your worship to something like that when you have got the Son of Man standing in the middle and let his voice, which is in the middle of the poetic literature that John gives us, let his voice be what you need today. Hear his voice. Because he is asking us today, who are you worshiping? This is about your discipleship and the choice is yours. So how will you choose? May I encourage you today, see the one standing in the middle. And he holds the church in his hand. Folks, we got a chaotic world in front of us, yes? But it doesn't matter. Want to know why? Because he's in the middle and he holds us. And guess what? He's going to see his church through. The devil doesn't win. He does. And that's why today, Revelation is a book of hope, not a fear. 
because he's standing in the middle and I'm secure. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are in the middle. Thank you for this word today that um, perhaps in an uncertain world, it just feels unsafe or just we're unsure, but you're in the middle. And I ask for my friends today that you will allow us to walk into this week to see the Son of Man in his glory. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the seven descriptors which proclaim to me today that you're perfect and complete, that your church, seven of them, it is the fact that your church is complete and it is perfect. I know we've got imperfections, but you love your church and you're gonna use your church to be the light in this world. So place us on those lampstands again today to shine for you as we approach this week. Thank you, Jesus, for how you describe yourself, how you reveal yourself. You don't conceal here. You want to let us know who you are. So let us walk into this week, heads held high, full of hope, knowing that you are with us today. So thank you for that. And with all heads bowed and eyes closed, I will also ask that perhaps maybe you're here today or maybe you're online with us and you've never accepted the Son of Man into your life. The one who died and rose again, who is holy and wants relationship with you, who will give you hope if you give him the opportunity to be the Lord and Savior of your life. If that is your story today and you would like this Jesus to be a part of your story, all you have to do is say, Jesus, here I am. I acknowledge that you are the Son of God, and that you died, and that you rose, and that you love me. And I want you to be my Savior. As easy as that, you can make that happen today. And if you made that decision, whether you are in this room or you are online with us today, on the screens as you walk out today, you're going to see the, the, the acknowledgement of texting the word LIFE to 250-478-7113. Let us know if you've made a decision to follow Jesus. So church, have a fantastic week in the things that you do. Walk away knowing that the Son of Man, He's in the middle. If you're looking to be a part of Rising Higher and knowing a little bit more about your purpose, visit Erica and Aaron. If you're brand new to us today, welcome. Come have lunch with us at First Steps through these doors. Have a great week, everybody. He is in the middle, amen? We love you. Have a good week. Good.